I invite you to join with me as we turn in the scriptures this morning to start the new year in the Word of God. Um, Mark chapter 2 is where we kick it off. So if you've got your Bibles with you, um, we, we got a new shipment of Bibles. Uh, and Maybe you've seen them out. We got a new shipment of Bibles. They no longer print these green Bibles that we had gotten such a good deal on. Um, ironically, back at General Conference in Portland a few years ago, they, uh, they, they sold... Um, they sold us a bunch of Bibles for a few bucks a piece, and we bought like hundreds and hundreds of them. They don't make them anymore, so we've got new Bibles, and I'm going to have to swap mine out. And, um, but, uh, but we give away Bibles here. So if you member, visitor, first time, hundredth time, uh, if you need a Bible, we give them away. And just grab them out in the, um, in the front entrance of the church or out in the welcome center. Uh, we, we believe in the Word of God and want to give it away. We, uh, we begin this morning in Mark chapter 2. And, um, and listen in to how Mark begins telling the good news of Jesus. And this is one of the early stories. He says, After a few days, Jesus went back to Capernaum, and people heard that he was at home. So many gathered that there was no longer space, not even near the door. Jesus was speaking the word to them. Some people arrived, and four of them were bringing to him a man who was paralyzed. They couldn't carry him through the crowd, so they tore off part of the roof above where Jesus was. When they had made an opening, they lowered the mat on which the paralyzed man was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Child, your sins are forgiven. Some legal experts were sitting there, muttering among themselves, Why does he speak this way? He's insulting God. Only the one God can forgive sins. Now let me pause just to say a note. Um, this, uh, this, this occurrence happens with the one that we know was the Messiah. Jesus was the Messiah. He was the appointed uh, chosen one of God to come and redeem God's people and to lead them out of bondage and slavery just like Moses had done before. He was the promised one. What's interesting is that there had been a belief that a Messiah was coming in, um, in the Jewish scriptures and in the Jewish sort of history and the Jewish uh, religious sort of um, worldview for centuries and centuries and centuries, but at no time, this is important, at no time was it ever connected that the Messiah would also have the ability to forgive sins. So, so they're literally saying to themselves, what's he doing? They don't think he's the Messiah, but they're thinking no one can forgive sins except for God alone. Now you and I know the rest of the story. It turns out this Messiah happens to also be who? God. It says in verse 8, Jesus immediately recognized what they were discussing. And he said to them, why do you fill your minds with these questions? Which is easier, to say to a paralyzed person, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, take your bed, and walk. But so you will know that the human one has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, get up, take your mat, and go home. Jesus raised him up, and right away he picked up his mat and walked out in front of everybody. They were all amazed and praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. This is the word of God for we the people of God, and we say together, thanks be to God. We also would be saying, 
we've never seen anything like this. There, there, there was something about Jesus in the early stories of Mark that attracted a crowd. The, the, the first verses say that when he returned to Capernaum, because he had been in Capernaum, he actually had to leave Capernaum in chapter 1. Because why? Because the crowds had gotten so big that he couldn't, he couldn't even hear himself think. It says, after, after a night of healing everyone in the region, he slips off into, a, into like a, a dark place, maybe like on a hillside, um, you know, not too far away, and the disciples find him there, and they're like, hey, let's go back, let's do it again, version 2.0 tomorrow, it's going to even be even bigger, and he was like, no, there's too many people, i got to go to the next town, and so he does, but so some period of time passes, and he comes back to Capernaum, and the crowds are back again, and they're so, they're so massive that in this, in this room, which, which might have been one of the larger rooms in Capernaum, they've done some excavations, and they believe they know where it is. It's, it was, it's most likely Peter's mother-in-law's house. I mean, it's, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, this, it's this room, and he's, and he's there, and they're so packed in. I mean, you can imagine that the door in the back, they're five or six feet you know, five or six people deep, and you can't get them in, and, and then there's this, there's this five guys, right? One on a mat, and, and, and four that are bringing the, their friend to, to meet Jesus, but they can't get to Jesus because of the crowd. Now, it was customary, customary in the, in the, in the, in the architecture of, of the time and the region that, that, uh, that the roof would have been made of packed earth, built on top of, uh, of beams, right? And so, and so you lay the beams, and then you pack the earth on there, and then the sun would bake it. But, but they would use that, they would use that, that roof to, uh, uh, you know, to, 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 to cook things, to dry meats, to do that kind of stuff. It was sort of like a, like, a, like a porch, like we would know it as. And so they had stairs built on the side of the house. That was very, all of this was very customary. And so they go up the stairs, right? And then they got this idea for how they're going to get Jesus excuse me, get the man to Jesus. What's fascinating is we know all this story. We know all this story. In fact, I, I, I'm going to hesitate to say it, but I'm going to say it anyway. This is almost a regular Jesus story to those of us in the church, right? To most of us, we've heard this story before. The story of, of, of the time that, that, that Jesus encounters this man who gets lowered down by the roof, and we all make jokes, you know, and, and, and we're still making jokes, like, Scott, you can't do that at the parsonage. And it's like, yeah, I know, I know, I know. You can't, you can't open the roof, right. <clears throat> no, really, you, you can't. Um, the interesting thing about what Mark is doing, though, is that he's telling us a story straight, but he's weaving into it stuff that maybe we don't see. In particular, when you get to, can you call up, Kylie, can you call up verse 4? There it is. It says they couldn't carry him through the crowd, so they tore off part of the roof. But here's what's interesting is, is you know, and I, and I went back and I don't read Greek, but I know people who read Greek, and so I went back and, and read what they had to say. When you, when, what Mark actually wrote in the original, like, language is it says, so they, listen to this, so they unroofed the roof is the original words, which, which I, I, maybe even a better English translation would just say, so they deconstructed the roof, right? Like a builder would construct a roof, and, and these guys come along, and they deconstruct the roof. They literally unroof the roof. But what's, what's interesting is that when you read that, and then you keep reading, and it says, when they had made an opening, they lowered the mat on which the paralyzed man was lying. 
It says, it says that they've taken this, ready? They've taken this earth and they've dug out the earth and then the four of them have lowered the man into it. Which isn't just the exact same thing that happens in a Jewish burial. It's the exact same thing that happens in a Christian burial. They, they've described a man who their friends are literally lowering into the ground. And he encounters Jesus. And at the end of the story, in the Greek, the word that's used, egerion, is the exact same word used in the last chapter for the resurrection. Mark tells us a story about a man who's been paralyzed and healed, but he does it and he weaves in words that are telling us what's to come. It's foreshadowing. It's, hey, I know the thing that's going to happen later on and I'm just working it in now because I want at least you at a subconscious level to know that Jesus is for healing and Jesus is for life and Jesus is for wholeness. And Jesus is for life over death. Jesus is for the resurrection. All of this stuff is happening in this story right here. And it's like the, it's like the very beginning of the book. Jesus is for, and we can't leave this out, Jesus is for friends. And you, and you read that in there. It says, it says, when Jesus saw their faith, he had compassion on the paralyzed man. And it says, he forgave his sins. It didn't say when he saw the man, right? And he saw his faith. It, saw, it says, it was plural. He was talking about the friends of the four guys that had this idea to lower him down into, through this packed earth so that he could encounter Jesus He saw their faith. Jesus is for all these things, and it includes friendship. I I reached out by text message to uh, some of my friends that happen to be preachers, and I uh, I said, hey, would you help me crowdsource my sermon for this weekend? And, And they were like, yeah, yeah, we'll see, we'll see. And so I asked them this question, simple question. What was Jesus against? What was Jesus against? And I'm telling you, my phone, like you could see the battery draining on it because it just sat there. I leave the ringer off all the time, but it just sat there buzzing. My preacher friends were all about it. What was Jesus against? And maybe you are too. Maybe you are too. What was Jesus against? And, and, they just, and it just starts ringing and firing back and firing back and firing. And I ask, I don't know, like seven or eight of them. They all happen to be guys. I asked seven or eight guys, like, like, what was Jesus against? And they fire back some questions, some answers. And I think they're pretty great. So I, here you go. You ready? Um, you got, we got three slides. Help me with this. Read, read these out loud with me. One at a time. Jesus was against greed. That's, that's in there, by the way. Jesus was against hypocrisy. Jesus was against meanness. Jesus was against 
abuse of power. All of these, I mean, again, and I'm not, don't take my word for it. Go read the word and, and you'll find it. this is all this stuff. What's the next one? Jesus was against exploiting the poor and marginalized. That was one of my friends that's a smarty pants. He used big words. But it's, I, I, I was going to rewrite it and I'm like, no, that's actually, he was completely against that. All right, next one. Jesus was against confusing the empire with the kingdom, right? I mean, because there were people who, who were bowing down to Caesar and saying Caesar is Lord, and he was like, no, 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 there is a kingdom, but he ain't the Lord. Jesus was against divorce used to exploit women. And it's just fascinating how he, he said, he said, the law from the Old Testament is true, but you have been misinterpreting it. You've been misapplying it. And he says that in there. And Jesus was against violence as an easy option. You remember, um, you remember in that last week, and they come to arrest Jesus, and, uh, and one of the Gospels tells the story. You guys know this? One of the Gospels tells the story that, um, that, uh, that as they were going to arrest him, one of Jesus' followers, I don't think we know which one, one of Jesus' followers pulls out like a sword and does what? He cuts the ear off of one of the soldiers that was there to, um, to, uh, to, to arrest Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He turns to the disciple and he was like, great job, you should have gone for the whole head next time, right? Is that what he does? And what's he do? He says, cut it out. And he reaches out. And he heals the guy's ear because Jesus was against violence as an easy option. And then the, then the last four, Jesus was against condemnation of others. Jesus was against exclusion and tribalism. I mean, that's, that's like every conversation he has with the Pharisees, that and the hypocrisy thing. Um, Jesus was against stubbornness and Jesus was against sin. Jesus was against me. And I got to tell you, from my, my, just this experience, but, but I think you guys are with me, like, it's easy to come up with a list of things that Jesus is against. And, and let, me, let me say, I don't pretend to think this is the exhaustive list. This is what we came up with, and, uh, and, and I sort of just, I, I was like, all right, that's, that's plenty, and we could spend all morning coming up with the things that Jesus is against, Right? And one of the reasons it's so easy to come up with a list of things that Jesus is against is because of how our brains are wired. I think we've talked about this before, but, but, it, but, it's, but it's scientifically proven that our brains are wired with something called a negativity bias. Negativity bias. And, this, and the science of it is that when we encounter something that's positive, when we encounter something that's neutral, and when we encounter something that's negative, our brains literally fire more electrodes, right? Le more electrons, that there's more, there's more neurons that are engaged, there's more chemicals being released when we see not the positive, not the neutral, but the negative thing. In fact, in fact, more than that, psychologists have shown that, uh, that, that we respond more strongly to negative news. Fact. That we actually believe that negative news is more accurate and valid than positive news, even when both have been proven to be valid, right? We, we, we are wired for the negative. And it's just the way it is. In fact, in fact, developmentally, they've gone and they've started, they've started studying. You, you guys, this doesn't surprise any of you. They've gone and started studying like, like children, like little infants. And they've shown that, that up until, and it's before the age of one, before the age of one, children's brains 
start to transform and, and they fixate on the negative things, the negative things, more than the positive things. This is, this is all in the world of science. This is the way we've been made, right? And, 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 and there's a lot of great reasoning why. Like, um, like if you're a caveman, right, and you're right there and you're about to go out on the hunt and you hear some awful noise out there, you need to pay attention to that noise. And you should probably not go out on the hunt for at least a little while when you hear that noise, right? I mean, like, like so I, I totally get why we're wired, you know, a, around the negative because the negative very often will save our lives, right? But, but if all we did was focus on the negative, what kind of life would that be? We can do better than just focusing on the things that are negative. We can do better than just being a people that are defined by what we're against. And I'm talking about my own life. I mean, I, we can do better than that, which is why I believe that God, and we're back to the scripture, gave us friends. Because friends balance us out. Friends tell us stories that remind us of the good times. Friends, friends, uh, friends every, if you've got really good friends, every once in a while, they, wait, they let you win at the things you're not good at. Can I get an amen? Right? Yeah, yeah. Friends, f- friends, <clears throat> friends, uh, uh, friends make us laugh. Friends make us cry when crying is a good thing. Friends are the positive that balances out the negative. And and I believe that not only here in the scriptures, but that throughout the story of Jesus, Jesus is for friends, and he knows what we need, because he made us. He knows what we need, and we need the positive to balance out the negative. We, we, need, we need the outside influence of friends that are saying, hey, for as bad as you think it is, right? This is, this is what a real friend does. For as bad as you think it is, let me remind you about that time that was even worse, right? You know, for as bad as you think you've messed up, did you forget about the time that you did the, you know, what, what, what? I mean, friends are the balance. When we want to go downhill, they bring us up. They do it by hook or by crook, but they do it. Friends are the positive that we have to have to live the abundant life that we are called to live. And this is, this is the whole gospel, is that we've been made to be in community and relationship. And that looks like friendship and for my last piece of evidence for that statement consider this on the night before the whole thing goes down right arrest torture trial it's a sham of a trial right execution and then the resurrection on the night before all of that happens, Jesus turns to his disciples over a meal and says, you got it, John 15, 15? I don't call you servants any longer. What does he say? 
I call you friends. Because everything I heard from my father, I have made known to you. You, 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 you hear me? You, you, could, you, could, you could consider that the whole trajectory of the gospel leading up to the resurrection itself, right there at the climax and pinnacle, Jesus says, we are friends. Why? Because he is for us. He's against a lot of things. And as Christians, we're supposed to be against those things too. Right? The whole list. And all the other things I forgot. But he is also for us. And he's for friendship. And he wants us to be for the things he is for. Which is, when you boil the whole list down, life to the fullest. I came across this quote. It's not on the screen. I'll, I'll read it to you, and then we'll sing. It comes from a, comes from a guy that writes on this, this miracle story in Mark chapter 2 named Jeffrey John. And he's talking about the four friends. He says, what they do for their friend is a perfect image of Christian intercession. It is the vocation of all Christians to carry others to God in their prayer and lay them before Him. It is hard work, which can often feel like trying to dig through the ceiling. The people we pray for may have no faith at all or even knowledge that they're being prayed for, but God, it seems, can use our act of will for others. Our prayer makes open a channel that lets his grace into this world to work for them in ways we ourselves may never see. So I just, again, invite you to join with me. What better way to start the year than to pray for friends who God has given us to balance us out for the good. Let's pray. Gracious God, in a world that clearly needs correction, clearly needs redirection, in a, in a world that clearly gets so much wrong, Your word tells us that you are for us. You are for life. And you are for the very things that bring life to us. So we're thankful for the people that you've placed in our lives that do that for us. Help us to be those people for others as well. Allow this year to start with us focused on that which brings goodness to ourselves, to others, and to the whole world. This is our prayer. It's a prayer we ask 
along with a confession that we have not gotten it right so very often. And yet you are trustworthy and good and right. And you are forgiving, even when we're not. So Lord, hear our prayer. That we ask in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen and amen.